be in Ephesians chapter 4. Hey, I started off the weekend by telling you three things about me. I told you I was married. I told you I had three kids. I, and then I told you that when I was your age, when I was in eighth grade, I met someone. And that someone was Jesus, and it changed my whole life. And I told you what happened after that, but I didn't tell you the story of how that happened. So tonight I want to tell you that story. I, uh, I grew up in church, like I told you, but, but, but really for me, growing up in church was a bit different than most people growing up in church. See, uh, my parents... This summer, June of 2023, they will celebrate 40 years of marriage. So they've been married for 40 years, which is awesome. They love each other. They're wonderful. They both love Jesus. But here's the interesting thing about their marriage. They, for 40 years, have been married, and they have almost never gone to the same church as one another. So get this. My dad is like this Irish Catholic man, and every year for 40 years of marriage on Sunday morning, he says goodbye to my mom, and he goes to Catholic Mass. And my mom is this Dutch Presbyterian lady, and she goes to her Presbyterian church. And so all growing up, and for all of their marriage, my dad goes to one church, and my mom goes to another church. And so growing up in the Howard House, there was never a question of whether or not I was going to go to church. The question was never am I going to go to church? The question was always, which church will I go to? So this was the question before me. And so as a young kid, I really had the option every single week, are you going to go to dad's church or are you going to go to mom's church? And as a young child, here's how I made that decision, especially when it was in the fall. In the fall, I would make the decision in this way. I would look up the time that my beloved San Francisco 49ers, who won today, I am going, I'm going to look at that on the schedule. And listen, listen, if they were playing the earlier game, I would go to church with my dad because his always got out earlier and then I could watch the kickoff of the game. But if they were playing later or on Monday night, I would go to my mom's church so I could go to church with her, sleep in a little bit, and then get to watch the football game. That's how it rolled for me growing up. And then, then I entered middle school. And my dad's church. My dad's church didn't have much for the middle. There was like a class for middle school kids. 
But at my mom's church, they had a class, and in that class, there was a ping pong table, there were donuts, and so as a sixth grader, I declared myself a Presbyterian, and I was a part of that church because I wanted in on everything that was happening there. So, so for me, all growing up, the question wasn't, will you go to church? It's which church will you go to? But then here's something crazy that happened. It was the summer before my eighth grade year. It was a summer camp just like this where we're gathered in a place like this and we're talking about Jesus and teaching from the Bible. And I'll never forget the pastor that night was talking out of the passage Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where he talks about giving your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And he talks about doing that as your spiritual act of worship, that you wouldn't be conformed anymore to the patterns of this world, like that you'd no longer live like everyone else, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's what he did. It was so simple that night. He just said, is there anyone here who wants that kind of life with Jesus? Like, is there anyone here who wants to give yourself over, your entire life, your entire body, your entire existence over to Jesus? And something hit me that night that I don't know if I had realized before. See, I had spent my entire childhood asking the question, which church will I go to? And that night I was confronted with a different question. Here was the question. Brian, what are you going to do with Jesus? Like, that became the question. It stopped being about where am I going to go to church or if I'm going to go to church. And it started to be about what do I actually believe about Jesus and what am I going to do with what he offers to me? And that is the same question I want to ask you tonight. See, tonight's sermon has one singular purpose, and that is to ask you a question and to give you an invitation. It is to ask you the question, what are you going to do with Jesus and in the same way that pastor stood up when I was 12 years old going into 8th grade and invited me to follow Jesus, tonight I'm going to give an invitation for some of you to decide to follow Jesus for the first time in your life. For some of you, you grew up in church just like I did. You know all the Bible answers. You can tell me all sorts of things about God, but you don't actually know God. For some of you, you're pretending and everyone thinks you're a solid Christian, but you've never actually surrendered your life to Jesus. And for others of you, maybe you've not been sure about God, maybe church has been a sporadic thing, maybe you've never wanted anything to do with him, but you just feel like something's happening in your heart and soul this weekend, and you sense that God is pulling you in, and wherever you are tonight, there is a singular invitation, and that invitation is to figure out what you're going to do with Jesus and respond to the offer he gives you. That's what we're going to do tonight. I want to talk about that through Ephesians chapter 4. So again, you have your Bible, Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what I want you to see. Last night, remember, we, we started off uh, when we just began talking about this life God has for us. And this life God has for us where he wants us to live differently than the rest of the world. Then this morning we talked about sin. And we talked about sin being the issue that we think wrong thoughts. So we feel wrong things, we harden our hearts. And therefore we do wrong things. We give ourselves over to the power of sin. But then we're going to pick up in verse 20 if you've got your Bible with you. So go ahead and look at it there. Here's what it says in verse 20. He says, that, however, like everything we just talked about, thinking wrong, feeling wrong, doing wrong, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Uh, like here's what Paul's trying to say. Like there is this way of living the rest of the world does where they think wrong thoughts, like, I know better than you, God, or they harden their heart and justify their sin, or they give themselves over to the power of sin. And here's what Paul says. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is not the way of life you were taught. In fact, there is a way of life you were taught. And it says it is in accordance with what? The truth that is in Jesus. So here's what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus is to first understand and know this truth about Jesus, and then to live in accordance with that truth that you've learned. It begins with believing what is true about God and his son Jesus, and then living in accordance with that truth. See, following Jesus begins with belief, but it leads to behavior. And both of these things are things we're going to look at. If you're going to follow after Jesus, it begins with belief, but it leads to behavior. And if you're missing one of those two things, you'll ultimately not follow Jesus in the way you're called to. See, some people, uh, what they try to do uh, is they try to change their life, they try to change their behavior without actually believing anything about it. And so maybe, for example, this morning, I said that actually according to the Bible, gossip is a sin. And you should not gossip. Like God has not called you to be a gossip where you're just constantly talking about other people behind their back. 
And you've been convicted of that. And if you say, I want to change that behavior, I want to stop gossiping, you will be powerless. You will have no power to change that if you don't actually believe gossip is a sin. If you're like, no, I just feel guilty, I know I should do it. Anytime you feel like you should do something, but you don't actually believe it's what you're called to, it's powerless. See, behavior change without belief is powerless. But then let me tell you the other side of things. So you see, some people, they claim that they believe something, but their behavior doesn't actually change. And behavior change, or, or, or belief, without behavior change, is phony. It's totally phony. Uh, it's like this. So um, every Sunday morning, I get a little alert on my phone. It's usually during the 9 a.m. church service that my family and I sit in, and a little ding comes on my phone, and it's always very convicting to me. And that is my weekly screen time report, okay? I don't know if anyone else feels this way. I get that screen time report, and it's like, I did what every day? This must be someone else's phone. This couldn't possibly be me. And so I think to myself sometimes, like, hey, listen, I really believe I should spend less time on my phone and more time, you know, interacting with other human beings. But then week after week after week after week, when my screen primer report is not going down, but rather it's going up, here's what it shows, that I don't actually believe that. See, if I actually believed I should spend less time on my phone and more time with people, what it would do is it would change my behavior because belief with, without behavior is phony. And so here's the deal. Here's what I'm trying to get at, and here's what Paul's trying to get at. When you actually believe something is true, it changes the way you live your life. And here's the trouble. Here's, here's why this is so important. There are millions, if not tens of millions of people in this world who call themselves Christians, who say that they are followers of Jesus, and yet it has made no actual difference in the behavior of their life. And what it tells me is that they don't actually believe what God has said about their life. Because when we actually believe something is true, it changes our behavior. It starts with belief, and it leads to behavior. That's why Paul is saying, this is not the way of life you've learned. You heard about Christ, you were taught in him, and you live in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. It goes on this way in verse 22. It says, you were taught with regards to your former way to put off your old self, which is being corrupted in its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. Maybe you do this already, and maybe you're not going to be comfortable with it, but when you're reading your Bible, I want you to know it's okay to underline things. I want you to know it's okay to circle things. It's okay to put little marks in your Bible. God actually loves when you study his word like this. And in verse 22, could you just underline the words, put off your old self? Put off your old self. And then in verse 23, if you're still underlining, and I know sometimes it's hard to underline quickly, but in verse 23 it says, be made new. And then in the verse 24 it says, to put on the new self. And, th and then in my Bible text here, I've actually circled the words, to be like God. N now why am I having you underline and circle those things? He here's why. Paul here talks about putting off your old self, being made new, putting on a new self, and somehow, this is so crazy, he is calling you to be saying you were created to be like God. Now here's what I want to point out tonight. These things that Paul is telling you to do, put off the old self, put on the new, be made new, be made like God, this is not stuff you can do on your own strength and on your own power. This is not a moral improvement plan for your life. Do you know how many Christians tell me things like this? Yeah, I'm following after Jesus. I'm just trying to be a really good person and go to church and be kind to people and be a good person in this world. And I go, that's awesome. You should be a good person in this world. But that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not just a moral improvement plan where you feel guilty about your sin and so you try to behave and clean up your act and act a little better. Following Jesus is an encounter with the God of the universe where it changes you completely so that someone looks at you and goes, you are brand new. Following Jesus is something that happens and people can tell something's different about this person even if they can't tell what happened. See, when you encounter someone or something as powerful as God, it changes your whole life. It's not you just trying to be a better person. It is a radical change. It would be like this. It would be like if tomorrow morning I saw you over in the dining hall at breakfast and, and you were like, 
hey, Brian, how are you this morning? I was like, oh, good. I slept well last night. How are you? You're like, you know what? I slept well last night. But then the craziest thing happened. On my way over to breakfast this morning, I was walking down from the dormitory, and I heard this really loud noise. And I was like, what's that? And suddenly, this big, huge snow plow was just plowing this slush and snow off the road. And the reason it was doing it was because this massive truck, this massive truck filled with food for the camp, was barreling down the road and trying to get into the camp. And you're like, Brian, it was so crazy. I just stood there in the street and watched this snow plow and this big rig, and I stood right in the middle of the street, and you'll never believe it, Brian, it ran me flat over. And then the big rig came and just ran me over a second time. And it was wild, and here I am. And I'm looking at you. You look well put together. Everything seems nice about you. I'd be like, I, I, I don't believe your story. Like, I wasn't there. I just don't believe your story. Why wouldn't I believe your story? Because if something that powerful hits you, I would notice a change. And the same is true with God. When you encounter the God of the universe and the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside of you, you become a follower of Jesus. It is a change that happens in you. It's not just you trying to be a better person. It is a full change that happens to your entire life. I want you to be aware tonight. I am not calling you to try to be a better person for the rest of your life. Tonight, I want to you, everyone in this room to encounter the presence of the resurrected Jesus. He is alive. He is loose in this world. And just like he encountered me when I was in eighth grade, and it changed my whole life, that same God that we were singing about earlier wants to encounter you. And he wants to change everything. In order to show you how that happens, I actually want to take you two chapters back in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles in Ephesians 4, I want you to go back two chapters to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see, or I'm I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. I misspoke. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see how Paul describes what it means to have an encounter with God that saves us, rescues us, changes us, and sets us in a different direction for our entire life. So here's what it says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Let me just pause on that. Here's what Paul says about the people who are far from God, who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus. He doesn't say they're bad people who need to make themselves better. He says they're dead people, and only God can make you alive. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan, the devil, the enemy of God and of you. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So here's what the scriptures say about you. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, and I don't mean if you don't go to church, everyone can go to church, anyone can be a nice person, anyone can try to be a better person. I'm saying if you have not trusted in and believed in Jesus and trusted in him and received his grace, here's what the Bible says about you. I just need to be so abundantly clear. It says that you are an object, a target of God's wrath. I kind of want to play games tonight. I don't want to just entertain you. I don't want to say stuff that just makes you feel good. I want to tell you the truth. Because the real truth is I would be a terrible pastor if I did not stand here tonight and tell you the truth about God's wrath. It's kind of like this. So I talk about my two-year-old boy. Um, I don't know if you know this about two-year-old boys, but two-year-old boys are basically little heat-seeking missiles to whatever will destroy them. So it's like we're cooking something hot on the stove. He's like, I want to help. And he pulls up a chair and like, like, no, 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 no. There's a knife on the counter. He'll, like, reach up and try to grab it. A ball will run into the street, and he'll run out to try to get it. And when he's running out to try to get that ball, you know what I don't do? I don't stand back and be like, listen, I'm going to let him live his truth. I'm going to live my truth. So, son, you just run out into the street. Car's coming, but you know what? We'll we'll see what happens. I just don't want to be judgmental. I don't, like, I don't do that, right? In fact, I would be the worst father in the world if I watched my son run into danger, if I watched him run into destruction and said nothing because I was afraid of his reaction. And I would be the worst pastor in the world if I did not stand before you and tell you 
that if you do not receive the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus for your sins, if you do not trust in him and be born again by the power of his spirit, if you do not do that, you are a target. You are an object of God's wrath. And the way God's wrath is described for those of us who will not put our faith and trust in Jesus, for human beings who will not do that, the word the Bible uses for that wrath is the word hell. The word hell. Listen, hell's not a game. It's not a joke. It's not the place where you go play poker with the devil and you kind of hang out and play jokes on each other. It is not any of that. Hell is God's judgment. Hell is God's punishment. It is eternal separation from God and punishment and condemnation for our sins for all of eternity. That is what the Bible describes. It is what Jesus describes. It's not something I make up. It's not something I particularly even want. To do. It's not like something I'm like, yay, I love talking about it. But it's just a reality that we must talk about. Because you have to understand this reality that the Bible is abundantly clear that if you, if you reject God, if you look at the God of the universe who created you and go, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction, and you go in your own direction and you never turn back to God, God will say, you can go that direction. And for all of eternity, you will walk away from God in separation in a place the Bible calls hell. You know, years ago, I was preaching at my church and I was talking about hell. And I had this young man come up to me after he was in his 20s. And he got really, really mad at me. And, and he came up and he actually put his finger in my chest. He was so angry. And he said, how dare you? How dare you talk about hell and say that if I don't believe in your Jesus, I'm going to hell. He goes, I'm a good person. I'm nice to my family. I help the poor. I help people all the time. And you're saying that if I don't believe in Jesus and trust in him, I'm going to hell forever. And he was mad. Maybe you've actually thought the same thing. And here's what I want you to know. I'm not saying that if you don't trust in Jesus, you'll go to hell. Jesus said that. Paul said that. God says that in his word. I'm not saying Jesus is the way, the truth, the light, the only way to the Father. Jesus said that. So if you've got a problem with that, if you hate that, if that stirs up anger and rage up inside of you, if something about that makes you revolt, your problem is not with me, your problem is with God. And I want you to wrestle with who you think God is, because here's the truth about it. When we look at God and go, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, I'm going in my own direction, we have committed treason against the king of the universe. And in every country, including our own country, the only penalty for treason against the high king, against the authority, is death. And what the scripture says, if we refuse to receive God's forgiveness, his love, his fellowship, and his grace, he will send us into an eternity where we are separated from him and where the condemnation of sin sits upon our, he our heads. Listen, hell is real. Hell is not a joke. Hell is separation from God, judgment from sin. Hell is eternal. But then here's the most important thing. If you're writing notes, write this down about hell. This is the most important thing you hear tonight. Hell is not somewhere anyone has to go. This is the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that hell is not a destination anyone must go to. It is not somewhere anyone has to go. Why? Because of the very next sentence in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Why is hell somewhere no one has to go? Because of verse 4. It says this. But, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. You know what the Bible says about our God? The same God who is filled with justice and holiness, the same God who is defined by his holiness, is also filled with these two words. Again, if you've got a Bible, circle it. Because of his great love for us, this God is rich in mercy. God is filled with love for you. God is rich in in mercy to you his heart for you is one of compassion one of mercy and one of grace where he welcomes you to come back to him and if you have looked at god and gone forget you god i'm doing my own thing going my own direction tonight if you would stop and put your foot in the ground and walk back to your father he will receive you with arms wide open and say you are my beloved child welcome home it, it's like this i've talked throughout the week about my kids um my 10-month-old my, my Hope, I snapped this little picture around Christmas. Uh, we'll put her up there. Um, yeah, she's outrageous. Um, like I said, happy Hopey, right? She's, she's just super cute. And um, here's the thing around this age, you might not know this. Um, this is kind of the age where kids start to learn to walk. So what she's doing right now is she's pulling herself up on the couch 
or on a chair. And so she'll stand there, and she'll hold on to it just like this, and that's kind of her standing. And then the skill she's developed in the last month or two is sometimes she'll let go. And she'll kind of do a little wobble, and then she'll grab back on. So my wife and I are like, it's time for you to learn the basic human movement called walking. And so we're excited about this. So here's what we'll do. We'll take her off the couch, and my wife will stand here, and she'll hold her like this, and I'll come over here, and my wife will hold her up, and she'll say, walk to daddy. And I'll be like, walk to daddy. And then my wife will hand, and then she'll let go. And what Hope does is she kind of wobbles for a little bit. She reaches for something, but there's nothing to grab. She's just reaching for something. And then here's the most tragic thing about babies. If you were to fall down tonight, you would use your hand to, like, coordinate some kind of fall where you don't, like, bonk yourself. Little babies do not have that hand-eye coordination quite yet. So when she falls, it's the saddest thing. It's just like, right? But she tries so hard, and my wife holds her up, and it's like, walk to daddy, walk to daddy. And she's standing there, and she tries to put her foot out, and she falls. And here's the deal. To this point, I even checked with my wife today to make sure. She has not yet even taken one step. And so here I am, going, walk to daddy, walk to daddy, and she keeps falling down. Now, here's what I want you to know. There has not been a single moment. There's not been one moment where she has tried to walk with me, that little girl, where I'm going, walk to daddy, walk to daddy, and she falls down. And I look at her, and I go, you are one pathetic, miserable little girl. Right, 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 listen, I would never say that. Why? Because she is my daughter, and I love her. And No, no, don't miss this. My heart toward her when she's trying to walk toward me is not anger and contempt and this sort of ick toward her. It is filled with mercy and compassion and patience and love because she is my daughter, and she's trying to walk toward her father. And here's the tragedy, that there are some of you in this room who think that your father looks at you when you stumble in your sin and is filled with disgust, contempt, and anger for you. Can I release some of you tonight to remind you that the scriptures say that God is rich in mercy toward you. And when you stumble toward your father, however much you fail, his heart is not filled with contempt. His heart is filled with compassion. His heart is filled with mercy to you. His heart is filled with love. The God of the universe looks at you, and when you're on his mind, his mind is filled with love for you, with compassion for you, with mercy for you. If you're writing down words tonight, can you write down these words? These six words might just change your entire life. These six words I need you to know, this is what our God has towards you. I just need to speak this over someone. These six words. He is not disgusted with you he is not disgusted with you he doesn't look at you and he's filled with anger and he thinks you're so gross and what would you even want with me god looks at you and he's filled with mercy he is filled with compassion he is filled with grace someone in this room was brought here on purpose for a purpose and the purpose this weekend was to know that the god of the universe is not disgusted with you he is rich in mercy he is filled with his great love it goes on this way and it says this it says he made us alive in christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. How does God feel toward us? He's kind toward us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. See, I told you tonight there was an invitation coming your way. But I need to be really clear. This invitation is not follow Jesus, and if you try really hard, you'll be saved from your sin. Follow Jesus, and if you're a really good boy or a really good girl, he'll forgive all of your wrongdoing. No, salvation is a gift from God. When God saves you, it is a gift. He does 100% of the work. You do 0% of the work. It is a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to deserve it. God just holds it out and says, this is a gift for you. And it is an offer of salvation given freely. It's like this. So um, 
the night I was married, almost 10 years ago, March 1st of 2013, got married um, in Westlake Village where we live right now, and we stayed at a hotel that night, um, Danny and I, and then the next morning, we went off to our honeymoon in Maui, and so we were so pumped, we got up early in the morning, and we took the car over to the airport, and here's what I've learned throughout my life, there are kind of two types of travelers. There's one type of traveler who wants to get there with a few minutes to spare, uh, and they just step right onto the airplane, that's me. And then you've got my wife who wants to be there about 65 days early for the flight just to make sure the plane doesn't take off without, that's her, right? And so we got to the airport super early, and so we're at the airport, uh, and we decide we're going to go get a meal. And now here's what you need to know. Um, someday if you get married, you'll, you'll experience this, and you can ask those who have gotten married uh, or even engaged uh, kind of what they do with this. Um, when you get married, you get this whole new set of vocabulary you get to use. There's this whole new word you get to use. Like before, this was like my girlfriend, and now it was my fiance, but now she is my wife, right? So everywhere I go, I'm like, let me hold the door open here for my wife. We get to the airport. I'm like, I'll let my wife go ahead of me in line. We're like in the little store at the airport. I'm like, I'd like a bottle of water for my wife, please, right? Like I'm just being so obnoxious. So I get up to this restaurant, and I'm like, can I have a table for two for myself and my wife, and she's just like so embarrassed, and I'm like loving it, because it's like, this is my wife, so they, we get a table, and we're just sitting there eating, and then finally, it's like, okay, it's probably time to go over to the gate, and so I wave down the waitress, and I was like, hey, we got to catch our flight, can I get the check, and she goes, yeah, yeah, she comes out, she looks back, she, she's kind of confused, and she's, I'm like, okay, this is a pretty simple thing, you send the check, I give you money, and then we go, like, that's the usual thing, but she comes back to the table and goes, hey, um, this is so weird, but I guess it's good. She goes, someone in the restaurant overheard that you just got married. And because they were so excited for you that you just got married, they paid for your bill. Yeah, how cool is that? And, and so this was the oddest experience because we're sitting there at the table. And what we usually do is we hand over money to pay for the meal we just ate, and then we go away. But this time, it was like we couldn't hand over money. The bill was already paid. It was like at that point we couldn't be like, no, 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 no. We'd like to pay for the meal a second time. We couldn't pay for the meal a second time. It was already paid for. Like the problem before us was like we had already received this gift. We had done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. We hadn't asked for it, and yet it was sitting there in front of us. So the only thing we could do is say thank you and go live our lives grateful. That was the only thing we could possibly do. Say thank you and go live in gratitude. And here's what I want you to know about the good news of Jesus Christ. It is a gift of God for you, for your salvation. You cannot earn it. There's nothing you can do to pay your way. The only thing you do when you receive God's forgiveness in your life is say thank you and live the rest of your life in gratitude and worship. That is all you do. See, here's the truth about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. God sent his son Jesus into the world to be the savior of the world. And the way Jesus was the Savior of the world and the forgiver of your sins was Jesus willingly, joyfully, lovingly went to the cross for you and for your salvation. That the cross of Jesus Christ where he is crucified, where he is nailed to a wooden beam and he suffers for your sake and for mine, that is where Jesus pays the bill for your salvation and pays the bill for your sin. The good news of Jesus is this. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for your salvation and rose from the dead that you might be with him forever. This is the good news of Jesus. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead for your salvation. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus gets beat up. Jesus gets physically punished. Jesus gets obliterated so that you will never have to be for your sin. Jesus gets hung naked and ashamed and embarrassed on the cross. He is hanging there completely exposed from the world so that you don't have to live in shame anymore. And you want to know the one I love the most? Jesus hangs on the cross and he cries out these words. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, Jesus is cut off and alienated from the Father so that you will never have to be. So that when you stumble in your sin, you have not lost your relationship with God. You are not cut off from God. Jesus has already experienced that, so you will never have to. On the cross of Jesus, Jesus takes your place. He is your substitute. This is the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus takes the sin of the world upon him. He suffers for your sins and for mine. He goes into the grave, but the good news of the gospel is he doesn't stay there. He raises from the grave to show that anyone who trusts in him might have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, 
He rose from the dead for your salvation. Salvation is a gift that Jesus has already paid for. You didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. But he gives it to you freely. And then Paul says these words in verse 9. He says, it's not by works so that no one can boast. It's not by works that no one can boast. And why can we not boast? Because the person who gets saved never gets to boast. It's like this, like, I have a hot tub in my backyard. And my kids, my older two, love to go in the hot tub. But they've loved to go in the hot tub for years, even when they were too small to, like, put their feet on the ground in the hot tub. And so the hot tub's not a big area, but my kids would like be on the little seat and then they would try to get across and they would step into the deep part of the hot tub and their heads would go below the water and usually they were fine. But this one time I was in there with my five-year-old and she steps in and she goes under the water and you can tell she wasn't expecting it. And so she slips back and you can tell this look of terror on her face that she wasn't intending to, but she slipped back and she fell into the water. Now I'm in the hot tub with her, so it's not hard for me to reach in, to grab her, and to pull her up, and to save her from drowning. It's so easy for me to do that. And, and yet, you've got to imagine at some point in your life, if Grace was like, yeah, you know what, that one time I kind of drowned in the hot tub, I was kind of like slipped and fell in the water, and I couldn't find my way up. I did most of the work getting back up. My dad helped a little. That'd be ridiculous. She did nothing. I did all the work. She gets none of the credit. I get all of the credit for rescuing her. Because when you get rescued, you get none of the credit. The person rescuing gets all of the credit. And that's how it works with God. Paul says, you're saved so that you can't boast. Here's what he's trying to say. God rescues, God saves, God does 100% of the work. You do zero. All you do is receive it with joy and live in gratitude and worship. See, this is the invitation. The invitation is that you are drowning in your sin and you call out to God that he would rescue you and he reaches his hand down and he pulls you out of the water. He pulls you out of the muck and the mire. He calls you his child. He forgives your, your sins, and he gives you a home in heaven forevermore. And the only question I'm going to answer in our remaining time tonight is this question. How do I get saved from my sin? How do I get rescued from God? And the answer is simple. You ask for it. You ask for it. You call out to God to save you. In fact, I want to give you a sentence that might just change some of your lives. It's going to be on the screen right now. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says these simple words. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, read these last three words with me, will be saved. This sentence is found all throughout the scripture. And I want you to know that this is the core of what we believe about the gospel. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the invitation that I want to extend to you tonight. That everyone, 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 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's break it down. That first word, what does it say? Everyone. See, what most people think is that some people, the holy people, the righteous people, the people who have never sinned really badly, the people who have never fallen into sexual sin in middle school because you feel guilty and you feel gross, maybe the good people, maybe the best people. No, 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 no. It doesn't say the good people. It just says everyone. It just says anyone. All the people, everyone who calls out to God, you are included in this beautiful, wonderful, expansive word, everyone. There is no one in this room, don't miss this, who is excluded from this word, everyone. Everyone who calls. It says everyone who calls out. You know the reason we call for help? The reason we call for help is because we recognize we can't do it on our own. Like when I was in middle school and high school and I was taking math classes, math was like impossible for me. I could never figure it out. I was always confused. I was always a little behind. So I'd call a friend. I'd be like, I don't know what to do. Can you help me with this? Why did I call my friend? Because I couldn't do it on my own. And I needed help. And you know what happens when you recognize that in your sin and in your fallenness, you cannot save yourself? You recognize, I cannot do this on my own. I need God to rescue me. I need God to help. It says everyone who calls, everyone who shouts out to God, everyone who prays, everyone who has God rescue me, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Do you know that there's only one type of person that God won't rescue? That's kind of an interesting thing to think about. There's only one type of person that God will not rescue. And it is not people who have sinned really badly, and it's not people who don't show up at church a lot, and it's not people who can't really read their Bible or pray that well. It's not people who are kind of lousy at being Christians. The only type of person God will not rescue is the person who doesn't think they need rescuing, is the person who will not call on God's name. God is ready and able to rescue you. And he says, if you call on my name, I will reach down, I will pull you out of that water. It says, everyone who calls, and then it says what? On the name of who? The Lord. 
Remember what we said about Lord earlier? That word Lord in the scripture doesn't just mean God. It does mean God, but it means more than that. It's this Greek word, again, this word kurios. And when we see this word, the Lord, in the New Testament, this Greek word kurios means this. It means master. It means king. It means the one who is in charge. Which means when I call upon the name of the Lord, I'm not just saying, God, rescue me from my sin and I'm going to go live however I want to live. When you call upon the name of the Lord, you are saying, Jesus, you are king of my life now. You are in charge. You're the master. You call the shots. I'm not in charge of my own life anymore. You are in charge of my life. You do not get to call on the name of the Lord and just say, I'm going to live however I want to live. You call on the name of the Lord because you recognize that God is already in charge and you are submitting your life to him. You, you know, sometimes I hear pastors or preachers say something like this, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone here. I'm just, I hear this a lot. I hear that there's an invitation to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And, and I know what people are trying to say there. They're trying to call people to experience and understand and know that God is Lord. But, but let's just be abundantly clear on something. You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. You don't make Jesus Lord. He already is Lord. You submit your life to him. You say you're king, you're master. You already are, and I submit my life to that. It says everyone who calls out, who cries out, who desperately asks this Lord for help, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And then it doesn't say might be saved. It doesn't say they could be saved. It doesn't say if you call on the name of the Lord and then you do really good things and try to avoid really bad things and you're a good boy and a good girl, then you'll be saved. Now here's what it says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, three words, will be saved. Will be saved. Your sins are forgiven. You're given a home with God forevermore in heaven. You are called a child of God. And here's the wild invitation for some of you tonight. Right where you sit tonight. If you would call on the name of the Lord, the God of heaven would reach down his hand. He would rescue you. He would save you. He would fill you with your Holy Spirit, and he would flip your life completely upside down. That's the invitation tonight. Maybe you grew up in church, and you're a church kid, and you know all sorts of things about church, and you know all sorts of things about God, but you have never confessed that God is Lord, he is Savior, he rescues you from your sins. You've never done that. Tonight, I want to invite you to do that. Maybe you've been far from God. Maybe you're not even sure you believe in God. But there's something in your heart that's saying this is true and I want this and I'm in. That is the Holy Spirit of God calling you to him. Tonight, I want to invite you to call on the name of the Lord where you sit. So here's what we're going to do in this moment. I'm going to give some of you an opportunity to do that. Now listen to me. Some of you did this years ago. Some of you did this last year. This is not a thing you have to do over and over and over again. It's like when I got married. Like, I got married once, right? I don't have to every year be like, uh, will you marry me again to my wife? I don't have to do that. I can celebrate my anniversary. I can look back to that moment. When I got married, that was a one-time deal. And here's what I want you to know. Sometimes we're tempted to think, okay, every time I go to camp, I got to, like, 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 confess Jesus again, and I got to be saved again. No, you're already saved. But some of you have never done that. And tonight, I want to invite you to call in the name of the Lord right where you sit. So all across this room, I'm going to invite you to do something. I want you to close your eyes right now. I want you to bow your heads. Everyone across this room, no exceptions. No looking around. Here, close your eyes. Bow your heads. Here's why you're doing this. I want to be abundantly clear. The scriptures say it is appointed for every single human being to die once and then to stand in judgment. Like in other words, there will come a day when you die and you will stand before the God of the universe. And here's the crazy thing. The person sitting to your left right now will not be able to speak for you. The person sitting to your right will not be able to speak for you. Here's the crazy thing. Your mom and dad will not speak for you on that day. Your youth pastor will not speak for you on that day. The reason your eyes are closed and your head are bowed is because you need to do some business with the God of the universe. This is not something that you're trying to impress anyone else with right now. This is something that you need to know of what you will do with Jesus. That was the question we started tonight with. What will I do with Jesus and the offer of salvation he gives to me? And here's what I know. I know that there are some of you tonight who need to call on the name of the Lord for the first time and be saved. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. This is just an opportunity for you to call on the name of the Lord. It's not some special kind of prayer. It's just me leading you in some words you can offer up in the quietness of your heart before God. So tonight, if tonight's the night you're saying, I'm calling on the name of the Lord, would you just pray this inside your heart quietly? Say, God, I believe you created me. God, you created the whole world. And yet, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your glory. 
and have walked away from you. But God, tonight I turn, I repent from my sin, and I throw myself on the mercy of Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I confess that you raised him from the dead. And tonight, God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Tonight, Lord, I call upon your name to rescue, to save. God, forgive my sins. Make me your child. Give me a home with you forevermore. Now across this room with your eyes closed, heads bowed, here's my question for you. If tonight you prayed that prayer, something like it, if tonight you want to call on the name of the Lord and you're saying that's me, I would like to invite you on three just to open your eyes and look straight at me. On three. One, two, three. All across this room. You can still look at me if you need to. Keep your eyes wide open. If that's not you tonight, you can close your eyes. You do not need to do this. I'm putting no pressure on you tonight. But if that is you, you just look straight at me right now because I've got two questions for you. If you are looking at me, I've got two questions, and I want to ask these questions. Here's the first question. Do you believe that you are a sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior who died on the cross for your sins that you might be forgiven? If the answer is yes, would you just nod your head with me? And if the answer is no and you don't believe that, I don't want to make a hypocrite of you. You can close your eyes. But keep your eyes open if that's true. And then here's the second question for those of you looking at me right now. Are you confessing tonight that Jesus is the Lord, the King of the universe, and the King of your life? Like, you're not in charge of your life anymore. God is. Jesus is. Like, your life is all about what he says it's about. If that's true, would you nod your head yes? And again, if that's not true, you can close your eyes. I don't want to make a hypocrite of anyone. But here's what the scriptures say to those of you looking me in the eye right now. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and that includes you. Meaning you're not going to be saved someday in the future, sometime later. God saves you right now. The Holy Spirit of God comes to you in this moment, in this chapel, on Saturday night at this camp. And that is worthy of us rejoicing. That is worthy of us celebrating. If you are looking at me right now saying, tonight's the night, I'm calling on God's name, I'm believing he's rescuing me, I want you to know that this is a good, beautiful, wonderful thing, but it's something we celebrate together. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You've done something true. I'm going to ask you in just a moment to do something brave. Tonight I'm standing here on this stage confessing that Jesus is Lord, he's King, he's Savior of my life. And if tonight you have put your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, if you are calling on the name of the Lord, I'm going to count to three once more. And I'm going to invite you to stand right here in this chapel with me. Stand with me and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So tonight, I want you to be brave. Tonight, I want you to stand as a declaration of a decision you've already made and a salvation that's already occurred as you called on God's name. Would you stand with me in confession that Jesus is Lord on three? One, two, three. Would you stand to your feet all over this room if that's you? Would you stand to your feet for the rest of us? Can we celebrate those? Look around right now. Understand those who have made this decision. Amazing. Stay standing. Stay standing. Um, I, I always want to give this shot, and if it's no one, that's fine. Um, stay standing if that's you. If that's you, shh. Shh. Is there anyone in this room who needs to stand who just hasn't done it yet? You know that's you. You just need to do it. Just want to give you that shot right now. Standing doesn't save you. God does. The Holy Spirit does. Right over there. That's awesome. Praise the Lord. That's amazing. Those of you standing, um, I want to say a few words to you. Um, one of the most beautiful things in my entire life was the moment I realized my wife was pregnant for the first time. It was a beautiful and amazing moment. We learned that she was pregnant, and I was so excited and so thrilled, and that was only matched by the moment that my daughter was born. She was born into this world, and it was the greatest thing ever. I wept at that moment. I'm not really a crier, but in that moment, I just sobbed going, I can't believe God has given this brand new life into our arms. But you want to know the craziest thing? The craziest thing is that her birth and her conception, like when she was just given to us, that wasn't the end of her story. It was just the beginning of her story. Because she was born into our family, and God put her on this earth on purpose and for a purpose, and he's raising her up for something great in this world. And here's what I want you to know. Tonight is not the end of your story. It is not the finish line. It is the beginning of your story. 
It's helping God begins to tell a story with your life where he uses you not just to be a Christian, but to change the world for Jesus. That's what God has called you toward. So tonight, as you're standing, saying, I'm calling on the name of the Lord, I want you to know the God of the universe brought you here this weekend on purpose and for a purpose, and the good stuff in your story is just getting started. Amen? Amen. You can have a seat. Never doubt. Never doubt that our God is the type of God who saves, who is filled with mercy and compassion and kindness and patience. And that is true for those who stood tonight, and that is true also for those of you who are not quite there yet. If tonight you thought, I'm so close, but I don't know that I believe it, and you chose not to stand, can I say thank you to you? Thank you for not making a hypocrite of yourself and pretending to believe something you don't actually believe. So I want to thank you, but then I also want to give you an invitation. Just because you didn't decide to follow Jesus in this chapel tonight doesn't mean that if you walk out of this place and get to cabin time tonight and go, you know what? I needed to call on the name of the Lord, that you can't do it there. Or tomorrow morning, or tomorrow night, or on the bus on the way home, or three months from now, or six months from now. Because the God of the universe, remember, is not filled with anger for you. He is filled with compassion and patience and kindness and grace. The God of the universe is filled with love for you. Never forget that we serve a God who saves. And that we have witnessed that God who saves tonight. And that is a special thing. And that is a beautiful thing. And that is something worth rejoicing in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight, and thank you that you are a God who rescues and who saves. God, thank you that this creation, this new creation you're forming in us, isn't just us trying harder, but it was like something you did miraculously in this room tonight. God, thanks for doing that for me when I was in eighth grade. God, thanks for doing it for so many here tonight. I pray that the seeds that you have planted tonight would not be snatched away by the enemy. They wouldn't be choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. They wouldn't be choked out by the things of this world, but rather they would grow and they would flourish and that you would use these young men and women for great things in this world. May they flip this world upside down. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.